The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is warning federal agencies to secure their network management interfaces. Holes in some of these devices have been exploited by hackers linked to China recently. CISA's new binding operational directive tells agencies what they should be doing about it. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has more on this story. And Justin, what is the operational directive that agencies are bound to? Yeah, so CISA under this the latest BOD, as they're called, is going to scan the networks of federal agencies to help them identify any networked management interfaces that are connected to the Internet, to the open Internet. And these devices are generally things like routers, switches, firewalls, other interfaces that allow kind of authorized users to remotely manage things. And the devices of concern are the ones that are connected over the Internet. So CISA is going to help agencies identify these devices or it's telling agencies to go out and check whether they have any of these devices that are connected to the Internet on their own. And then CISA is giving agencies some direction on what to do once they identify those devices. And if they find them, what should they do? The first option is to remove it from the internet and have it connected via an internal network. That's the first step. And that seems to be what CISA is really emphasizing here. And then another option, which CISA describes as the quote unquote preferred action under this directive, is to deploy capabilities that can enforce access control separate from this interface, from this device itself to essentially assure that those who are using this interface, accessing this interface, are indeed users who should be doing that. That's that's kind of a zero trust architecture type approach that CISA wants agencies to take here. But lacking that approach, they just want them to take it off the internet. I guess if they had zero trust, the Chinese couldn't get in there in the first place. I think that's the idea here. And of course, agencies have been working on getting to a zero trust architecture, but agencies and organizations across the world are really kind of in the early stages of adopting that new security approach. And what do we know about this Chinese-linked hacking group? What's it doing? How is it exploiting these interfaces? And is CISA aware of this group before? Yeah, what's interesting is this directive is coming a little less than three weeks after Microsoft first described how this group called Vault Typhoon has allegedly targeted critical infrastructure in Guam and elsewhere in the United States since mid-2021. And it's been using these networked management consoles to essentially get access to these critical infrastructure networks. CISA and several other agencies later followed up that initial Microsoft blog post with its own blog post, essentially saying, yeah, we're seeing this too. We want you know, critical infrastructure groups to be aware of it. I spoke with Matt Hayden, a former CISA official and current executive at General Dynamics Information Technology about how, you know, CISA has already been aware of these types of vulnerabilities, but Vault Typhoon really brought it to the forefront. So they started to work out what the the details may be on this a couple months ago and started doing some querying of the different networks to see where these devices were. And then Vault Typhoon happens. And we start to see management consoles for security devices getting directly abused and attributed to the Chinese government by the federal government publicly. And were any agencies already onto this exploit because they might have gotten that alert from Microsoft before CISA did? And are they getting after it at all? Do we know? We don't know if any agencies were privy to the Vault Typhoon exploitations that Microsoft first publicly attributed prior to that happening in late May. What we do know is that Microsoft says Vault Typhoon gains initial access 
through internet-facing FortiGuard devices made by the cybersecurity firm Fortinet, which many agencies are familiar with and do business with. The company has already released patches, including the one that was reportedly accessed by Volt Typhoon uh, last year, actually. And those those vulnerabilities are on the known exploited vulnerabilities catalog that agencies have to patch. But as Hayden pointed out to me, this isn't about patching. Even if you do patch your devices in this case, the binding operational directive tells you to take an additional step beyond the patch. No matter which application is next, whether it be a Fortinet vulnerability or something else that adds to that non-exploited list, we want to make sure that we have a buffer of conditional risk is met. We're buying down the risk of that cascading. At this point, the federal government is basically saying, don't connect any of these to the wild, wild west, just because there are going to be unknown vulnerabilities that will come in the future to these, and the exploit is too great, so we can't have that happen. Well, of course, you shouldn't not patch. If you get a patch from a vendor, you have to do that. I mean, that goes back to time immemorial. And I guess my other question is, all right, so you take these devices off of the public internet. They're still connected to your net in a way that you can control your network. So are they really off the internet, or they're just a couple of more hops away from the internet than they were before. I think the point here is uh, that while there's always kind of a way to tunnel in through the internet to different parts of uh, uh, an organization's network, you can't have such a, a high priority uh, control, essentially controlling interface that allows you to touch several different devices and and uh, and, and users on your network publicly accessible through the open internet. That's that's essentially what CISA is saying here. Unless uh, you have these zero trust access control type controls in place so that you can really be sure that who is who whoever is using this application is who they say they are and should be using it. And in the meantime, this binding operational directive means you got to do it if you're a civilian agency. That's right. I should have mentioned that. So essentially CISA is going to scan the federal networks for these types of devices. And if CISA identifies one or if an agency identifies any of these devices, then then an agency has 14 days to either take it off the open internet and or apply these zero trust access control decisions. And so that's the timeline that agencies will be working on once these devices are indeed identified. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. 
Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do 
other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> 
and um, mm-hmm. being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.